Hey, podcast family, welcome back to another episode. I recently received a Facebook message from one of our podcast family members who is in Southern Cali. I mean, Southern Cali, how how beautiful is that weather down there, huh? I used to have an uncle down, an uncle-in-law, my wife's uncle, who lived in Fullerton. Great area, all of that Orange County area, so great. Anyway, uh, absolutely distracted, that's not where I was going. Uh, but this Facebook family member uh, who's a certified nurse midwife said, Hey, Dr. Chop, a quick question for tight nuchal cords at delivery what really is the best management technique here and before you think ah well i know what to do there i mean just kind of cut and clamp right cut clamp and cut uh that's how i trained or you try to reduce it but it's more complicated than that because i had to learn this maneuver after residency even though it had been published even before i went to residency so in this episode we're going to talk about one of the potential ways to deliver a child with a tight nuchal cord all right and i'm going to give you the data why this maneuver is probably the best but you got to know how to do it so we're going to talk about it we're talking about the fetal somersault delivery maneuver that's the fetal somersault delivery maneuver nothing new been around since 1991 but it's interesting because if you look at some of the articles on delivery through a tight nuchal cord and that most obviously talk about reduction of the cord which is hard to do if it's by definition a tight nuchal cord but nonetheless reduction of the cord so pulling it over the baby's head and then delivering or cut and clamp which honestly it's probably the most problematic and i'm gonna explain why in this episode and then and then few uh talk about the somersault maneuver but not all so it really is this kind of hidden uh underground but super valuable and recognized technique so have you heard of the fetal somersault maneuver well if you haven't i'm gonna explain it in this episode we're gonna cover how to do it and why cut and clamp which is what i learned to do with the tight nuchal cord probably is not in the baby's best interest. Here we go. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. As scary as they can be, an incidentally found nuchal cord on ultrasound is not uncommon at all. I mean, based on who you read, it can happen anywhere from 25% of the time up to 30% of the time. So one in four to basically one in three. And the chance of that happening, the chance of you finding that increases with increasing gestational age. Now, let me just say something right off the bat. The vast majority to almost all nuchal cords found are absolutely benign and not something to worry about. Okay, so that's the good news. The the not so good news is that in a very, very small percentage of the time uh, with the right conditions. So that's the catch nuchal cord with the right conditions, uh, meaning uh, a severe constriction, uh, possibly with the addition of a true knot, other placental factors, a, a nuchal cord may contribute, notice the word may contribute, not does contribute, but may contribute to uh, intrauterine fetal demise, to stillbirth, all right? 
Now, incidentally, uh, some stillbirths on, on investigation are found to have a nuchal cord, but the criteria to, to describe that as a true cord accident is very strict, okay? So you shouldn't just see, oh, it's a nuchal cord, obviously that did it. It's got to meet several pathological criteria within that cord. So always send that suspicious cord segment and the placenta to the pathology. And it's a very strict criteria of what defines a possible cord accident as a contributor to fetal stillbirth, right? Now, our, our focus is not on stillbirth. We, we've done this on many times in the past, and it's heartbreaking. I've even shared a personal detail about a, a close friend of ours and coworker. Uh, it's devastating. Um, but but in order for us to say it it seems to be related to that is is not alone it's not sufficient just to have a nuchal cord alone all right nuchal cord with additional factors placental factors placental infarctions a, a an additional uh, a true cord with thrombosis for example, increases the likelihood that that was a contributing factor. So I, I don't want to ignore that, okay? So I don't want to minimize that importance. But but on the other side of the coin is that the majority of nuchal cords that are found incidentally are absolutely nothing to worry about. They are considered a benign finding. So that's the clinical pearl, right? The vast majority of cases, there, there's nothing to do with that. That doesn't alter delivery uh, timing. It's not an indication for early delivery. It doesn't require C-section. Now, it may get into a C-section at time of, of birth, uh, intrapartum, because of persistent category 2 tracing, but in and of itself is not an indication to go straight to section, okay, to allow for, for non-vaginal delivery. Make sense? So what I'm trying to drive home is that nuchal cords found incidentally, either antepartum with ultrasound or at time of delivery, is not something to freak out about in and of itself, okay? Now, at time of delivery, a single loop of cord has been reported to occur anywhere uh, from th- that same percentage, again, 25 up to 30% as a single loop. Two loops have been found anywhere from 2 to 3% of deliveries. And then multiple loops, which is defined as more than two, only occur in anywhere from 0.2 to 0.3% of all deliveries, okay? So much more common to have a single loop of cord uh, at the 25 to 30% of all deliveries based on the data. Two loops in around 2 to 3%, and then multiple loops, which is defined as two or more, is obviously the outlier, okay? It's like 0.2% to 0.3%. Now, look at the dichotomy of this whole issue of nuchal cords, right? We said on the left-hand side, let's say, is the thought, prevailing thought that, hey, these are normal findings. I read once where they, they're called, oh, it's, a, it's called a fetal necklace rather than a fetal noose. Uh, just to show its benign nature that this sometimes happens and it shouldn't influence delivery mode or delivery timing, all right? That's the, the delivery necklace. Uh, I'm sorry, the fetal necklace. Very nice way of putting it, but the truth is, again, on, on the right hand of the problem at the other end of the extreme is the, the fact that, yeah, in the right condition, this, this could be wh- horrible uh, and potentially a contributor to stillbirth with cord accident. And we mentioned just a little while ago that the, the numbers or propensity of a single, double, or multiple 
nuchal cord, right? Well, in BMJ case reports from last year, this was February 2022, Henkelman et al. published a case report. Just a single case. But look how complicated this is, right? So look at the variety of this. So when somebody ever asks you, somebody asks on a, on a board question, let's say, tell me about uh, the, the frequency of nuchal cords. You go, ah, well, 25 to 30%. Most are single, typically uh, not related to any kind of adverse issue. Most of the data shows that they're benign, although in the right context, it could be terrible. And somebody asked, well, how many nuchal corns have been reported? Well, uh, truth is about eight to nine have been reported. <laughs> yeah, there's actually been a report, case report of nine nuchal cords, but that was some time ago. This case report of BMJ in 2022 had eight nuchal cords. Now, this was in the setting of severe fetal growth restriction, so there were multiple scans going on. Uh, and then, of course, it required an urgent C-section due to non-reassuring fetal heart tones because there was already the compromised placental function with a fetal growth restriction, FGR, but it was eight loops of nuchal cord. Eight. Is that crazy or what? The title is Cesarean Delivery of a Breach Singleton with Eight Loops of Nuchal Cord. Wow, I'm talking about making sure that your technique is okay. <laughs> now, again, our focus here is not on the breach with nuchal cord. Maybe we can do that later, but I'm focusing on the vaginal delivery approach uh, to nuchal cord management. All right, how do we deal with the nuchal cord at vaginal delivery? But I just bring this up just to, to highlight the variable presentation of this. Yeah, eight loops of of nuchal cord with a fetal growth restricted child. And again, they published that. This is why I, I tell my medical students and the residents all the time. Look, if you find something weird that's out there, put it into print. I mean, uh, th that's how stuff stays underground and, and obscure because nobody puts it in, into reports. We talked about the Bandle ban. Thank goodness for, for that uh, write-up uh, years ago. We have a whole episode on that because if not, people would not know that that's a thing, right? So if you see something weird, put it in print like this single case report of eight loops of nuchal cord. And I mentioned that there has been a previous one with nine loops of cord. Put that in there. Put that in the circulation uh, in medical literature so that people can find it and help, it can help guide others in the future. Now, before we get back to the specific, none of this is what we're supposed to talk about, by the way. I wanted to just focus on the on the actual maneuvers and the somersault thing and why clamping and cutting is probably not ideal. But if you have to do it, let me just say, if you have to do it, then do it. I mean, sometimes a somersault maneuver cannot be done. So let me just preface that before we get into the actual discussion. Um, if you can't reduce it, that would be the easiest uh, then go to the somersault maneuver. And if you can't do that because the cord is so short and tight, then cut and clamp. So the take-home message here is that cu cut and clamp, which is how I learned to deal with a tight nuchal cord, uh, but now we've known more, right? Now we know the, the, the impact that can have for uh, fetal uh, uh, blood volume status and perfusion and oxygenation. I'm going to get into that in a minute. So leave that to the last. So in between reduction, if you can't do it, and cut and clamp should be the fetal somersault maneuver with the caveat that no, it, it may not be able to work all the time. And by the way, some of you have done this because I've done this by accident. Okay. When I'm trying to reduce the cord, mom keeps pushing and bloop, baby somersaults by itself. And I'm going to get in. I'm going to explain that in a minute. All right. But the take home is of the three ways to manage a tight nuchal cord, reduction would be the best. Somersault is the next best. And then cut and reduce will be the least favorable, which is ironic because I trained with cut and tie, right? Cut, cut and tie. <laughs> I mean, cut and trans, 
clamp and transect. My goodness, I'm, I'm going to get this right, I promise you guys. Cut and then transect and then reduce, all right? And in, in the vast majority of cases, that's okay. That's okay, but it's not the best. And I will explain in a minute. But before I do that, what I was trying to say is I do want to get into the, the minimal criteria that defines a cord accident when the heartbreaking and uh, devastating occur, which is a stillbirth, okay? So in cases of intrauterine fetal demise, IUFD, uh, slash stillbirth, in order to attribute it to a cord accident, not only do you have to see it, I mean, there's obviously uh, a nuchal cord present or multiple, uh, but sometimes it can be physical signs of, of strangulation. Sorry, guys, I know that's difficult to, to think about, but let's just say this and be done and move on to what we're talking about. Um, so there's physical things that you have to describe very well. And then histologically, that's why it's so important to send that that section of the placenta and uh, section of the cord and the entire placenta off because there is some minimal histological criteria here, okay? So what's been proposed by pathologists to call it a cord accident uh, is the following. One, there has to be that area of the cord that has vascular dilation, aka ectasia, right? So the vessels dilate. Uh, usually that space is filled with a, with a complete thrombus, a complete block. Uh, and there should also be thrombus uh, downstream, in other words, a point of origin or upstream, I guess, to the placenta. There should be thrombus at the chorionic plate and or stem villi. All right, so that vascular ectasia with a full thrombus that, that actually obstructs blood flow uh, is considered the minimal criteria, not all of it, just the minimal criteria to say, I suspect that there is a cord accident, all right? And you can find that up online, and I'll post a reference to it as well. But just to say, it's not enough to, to, to see it and make that guess. It does require histological confirmation uh, that that likely occurred, all right? So that's the minimal criteria for cord accident. I promise I'm going to get into the actual delivery steps here in just a minute uh, and why kind of clamp may not be the best. But just to reinforce this idea that nuchal cords are basically benign, although they do increase the risk of category 2 tracings, potentially the need for C-section and or operative vaginal delivery uh, intrapartum, all right? But the good news is, I want you to hear this uh, very clearly, quote, there does not seem to be an associated relationship with increased neonatal morbidity, end quote. Where was I reading that from? That is from some authors that I greatly respect. You know, I've I've said this many times before, man, George McCones, uh, Methodias Tooley, I mean, these are the rock stars, right? Allison, Allison Shahill, uh, these are just rock stars um, from uh, MFM. And they published this in 2022. Wait, let me, I lost my place. Sorry, guys, 2020. <laughs> Uh, I've got, yeah, I've said this again on several episodes. When I do a podcast, guys, I usually have one or two screens. Right now I have two, and I've got all these tabs up. I have an outline, but that outline is like bare bones, right? Because I, I like to be more spontaneous, obviously, uh, and not so verbatim. So I, I like to have some notes, but I like to just go with it so it doesn't sound so scripted. Some things we have scripts for, uh, but the majority of it, I just, I know what I have in my head. I have a brief outline. And usually you can tell when I don't have a script, hence, a.k.a. like right now, because I start to deviate from exactly where I was going. Uh, where was I? 
oh yeah, okay. So Journal American Journal of Perinatology. So American Journal of Perinatology 2020. Oh, and I have to say, so this was when uh, Dr. McCones was still at uh, at Wash U, uh, but I'm very happy to say that he is now at UT Dell and has been at UT Dell uh, in Austin, just down the road. So yeah, just just great folks. And then this was also when Methodized Chuli was still at Wash U as well. Okay, fine. So they published in 2020 the American Journal of Perinatology. A, a review, and the title was Electronic Fetal Monitoring and Neonatal Outcomes When a Nuchal Cord is Present at Delivery. And I already read you the conclusion, right? Yes, this does increase the risk of Category 2 tracings. It increases the risk of avenue infusion, maybe C-section, uh, possibly OVD, which is operative vaginal delivery. But, quote, there is no significant association with neonatal morbidity, okay? So outside of the stillbirth issue, that's a whole different thing, but you can reassure patients that, look, there's a nuchal cord, we found it, yes, it's an acute issue, but there's not really not uh, anything tied here to long-term neonatal issues. And this has also been looked at in terms of, of, of umbilical arterial cord gas abnormalities, and really umbilical artery gases just aren't that helpful, honestly. Regarding the non-impact in general, right? I know that there's situations where everything is possible, but in general, a nuchal cord doesn't really affect uh, true findings in an umbilical arterial cord gas. And there's been several reports that have done that. But the most recent one was published January of 2022. This was published in the journal Pediatric Reports. And the title is The Relationship Between Nuchal Cord and Adverse Obstetric and Neonatal Outcomes. This was a retrospective cohort study. Now, they found the exact same things. Yes, it increases some interventions. Yes, it is linked to lower uh, one-minute APGAR scores, right? So we know that first minute of life, that APGAR score really doesn't mean anything to begin with. It's the one at five, 10, and so on that really matter because the the one-minute APGAR score, a lot of that is uh, transition and uh, neonatal stress and an adaptation to extrauterine life, all right? So unless it's zero, of course, zero is a big deal, but a low APGAR score in general for the first minute it does, it has zero prognostic value. Okay, and what they found here is that quote nuchal cord increases the chance of that reduced APGAR score in the first minute of life, but the observed relationships do not translate to neonatal arterial blood cast testing. End quote. In other words, it didn't really seem to lead to any real alterations in the cord gas. So it is good news that it doesn't seem that nuchal cords have any adverse implications to umbilical cord gases. And this thing that, this theme, that it seems to have no real lead-in or implication to altered neurodevelopment uh, is also reassuring. One of the other publications that just recently looked at this as well was March 2022 in the Journal of Clinical and Experimental Pediatrics. The title of this publication from March of last year is, Is Fetal Nuchal Cord Associated with Autism Spectrum Disorder? This was a meta-analysis. Because this is what scares people, right? I mean, hey, you say that there's no immediate impact now, like on a cord gas, which is great. But what about long-term stuff? Well, the answer is is no. As the authors state in this review, quote, to our knowledge, this is the first systematic review and meta-analysis to assess the association between fetal nuchal cord and the risk of 
autism spectrum disorder. And they just make it very clear, based on the available evidence, this meta-analysis showed that fetal nuchal cord was not a risk factor for ASD. So again, more reassurance that this could be potentially a normal finding, and again, not linked to any adverse neurodevelopmental outcome, although that one outlier of the stillbirth in the right clinical context, of course, is a possibility. But in the vast majority of cases, uh, nuchal cords are benign findings. All right, so it is reassuring that these babies seem to have um, normal APGARs outside of the first minute, no real impact on fetal metabolic acidosis, and there's no strong data that says that they're going to have altered neurodevelopment down the road. If you take a look at a patient-friendly patient info uh, webpage from my alma mater from UT Southwestern, one of my old attendings, ooh, I don't want to say old. How about prior? Ooh, sorry, guys, sorry. One of my prior attendings, she would not, she, she would not appreciate that. I, I did not mean any disrespect. One of my previous attendings, how about that, from residency, uh, who's still there, is just a la bomb. I mean, she's fantastic. Dr. Robin Horsager. So Dr. Robin Horsager has on the UT Southwestern, oh, um, my baby has an umbilical cord around the neck. You know, what to do. Uh, and she puts it very clearly here. So first of all, everybody uh, stresses out. You know, there's an umbilical cord around the baby's neck. And as she writes in her little patient-friendly commentary, quote, pregnant women breathe a sigh of relief. She goes on to say, nuchal cords are surprisingly common and unlikely to cause a problem during pregnancy or at birth. Estimates suggest, again, there's the same numbers. She says 20 to 30. I say 25 to 30. Uh, is the same thing, all right? Of all deliveries involving nuchal cord and a 2018 study in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology reports that in the majority of time, babies do just fine when one is present, end quote, okay? So that, again, is it's just to talk the patients down off the ledge that it seems to be okay, not an indication for early delivery. You don't need a section for that unless something else presents itself in the normal rules of intrapartum care, okay? So the good news is, is that it is a relatively benign finding and it's nothing to worry about. Dr. Horsehager goes on to say in this patient-friendly website, quote, in that same 2018 study, most babies with a nuchal cord had just a single loop around the neck. Fortunately, there was no increased risk for growth problems, stillbirth, or lower APGAR scores in that group, end quote. So thank you, Dr. Horsager. Exactly what we've been saying here. So uh, all to say, can they cause bad things? Absolutely. But again, as, as I tell the students and I tell my kids all the time, hey, everything is possible, but is it probable? Okay, I tell that when the kids want something. Hey, Dad, can we get a new Xbox? My first answer and my first instinct is, hell no. But after I take a deep breath and I get the look from the wife to not say that, then I say, hey, everything is possible, but is it probable? And for the new Xbox, that probability is no. All right, we are inching ever closer to our somersault maneuver, but I did mention a little while ago, and I guess I should give you reference for that, for uh, calling nuchal cords fetal necklaces, not nooses. Um, not my opinion. Again, this was a published opinion that came out of Midwifery Today International in 2010. And there's some good points in this commentary. The title is exactly that, Nuchal Cords are Necklaces, not nooses. That author was Judy Sloan Cohen, 
and it states right here. It's a good review. Now, I know, I know it's a little old, 2010, but it does make the point that we've already discussed here that most, thankfully, are benign. She goes on to say in this commentary, quote, since nuchal cords occur at a rate of 30 to 34 percent at 40 weeks and are not associated with adverse perinatal outcomes, practitioners and women should consider their presence reassuring and normal, end quote. So anyway, this is not really the focus of what we're talking about, but I'm just driving home that nuchal cords are super common. This is why when I received that message of, well, how should we really deliver one through that? I'm like, yeah, this is something we all see. And most are reducible. That's that's easy. But what happens when it's really tight? And it is important because, as I mentioned earlier in the intro, I had to learn this after the fact um, because this wasn't taught to me during residency, and I trained at an extremely uh, OB heavy residency program. Um, it was just cut and clamp, just cut and clamp, be done, and then deliver the kid quickly. But now that we know more and the importance of that placental transfusion to the neonate in those first seconds after birth, cut and clamp may not be the best. And again, I want to be very clear there is a time and place for it. If it has to be done, then do it. But it should not be the go to. That's the take home message here. If you notice that reference, it was from a midwife journal as is the original description of the somersault maneuver, all right? Uh, thank goodness for our midwives. As I mentioned before, I have a whole podcast on lessons learned from midwifery, um, that historically there was this big chasm, right? Those physicians did one thing, and midwives did the other, and the two, you know, never the two shall meet. Um, that's not true at all. I mean, the whole field of obstetrics was literally birthed, remember, no pun intended, birthed out of midwifery. I mean, that, that, that was all uh, in midwifery science uh, initially. Uh, but now we are running definitely more parallel. We're definitely not running against uh, one another and not away from one another, but we're running together in the same direction. So the Somersault Maneuver uh, was originally published in 1991 uh, in, in a midwife journal, and it is still relevant today. But I'll get into that in a minute. But for right now, I think our next thing that we want to talk about is the cut and clamp issue, all right? Because as the entire trend is now towards delayed cord clamping, and that's what should be done unless there's a, a, a big reason why you shouldn't, like complete uh, fetal uh, instability or maternal instability, uh, then every baby should have delayed cord clamping. I've got a whole episode on that. You can go back and listen to the archives. ACOG has several articles on this as well. And while it was traditionally called delayed cord clamp, it's now called management of placental transfusion to the neonate. Why? Because it's more actually physiologically accurate. And of course, you got to make things much more complicated and make it sound much more deep than it actually is. Because that's what we do as physicians. That's why, as I've said before, I have proposed a new term for C-section, right? C-section gets overused so much, C-section, C-section, blah, blah. You all know what I've decided to call that. I've said this on past episodes. For those of you that are regular listeners, you may remember that my proposal for renaming the C-section is vaginal bypass surgery. Uh, it just sounds so much more complicated, doesn't it? Wow. Oh, we're gonna, she's going to proceed to vaginal bypass surgery. What is that? A C-section. But it really does make that case, doesn't it? I mean, instead of just saying delayed cord clamp, I mean, that's the act. But really what you're trying to do is influence the actual benefit, which is placental transfusion to the neonate. That's the importance. So yes, I get that. The act is delayed cord clamp, but the physiological benefit is placental transfusion to the neonate. Uh, and so that cut and clamp before the baby delivers, that's why that's problematic because remember, we're talking about delayed cord clamping after delivery, right? And the reason that it's after delivery 
is that immediately after the baby is born, those first gasps of life allows placental transfusion to go into the child and helps maintain normal uh, blood volume status within the kid. So think about this. If we interrupt it before delivery happens, then potentially the baby is missing on that valuable transfusion of blood um, into his system. So there is this potential for hypovolemia and anemia and hypoventilation, uh, hypooxygenation rather, uh, if it is cut and clamped before. Plus, here's a big issue. The bigger issue is if we cut and clamp the cord before delivery and there's some unforeseen delay in getting the baby's body out, then we have completely stopped all uh, communication, all blood flow going to the child. This was last covered by ACOG's Clinical Expert Series back in January 2022. And it's it's just a really nice. I did a grand rounds off of this. Uh, and we had several student, uh, medical student and resident teachings based on this clinical expert series. Uh, it's just really good. The title is Management of Placental Transfusion to Neonates After Delivery. Now, this is not when delayed core clamping was first proposed. That's been many years. But this is a nice review of, of the importance of that delayed cord clamp at time of delivery. So notice this, if delayed cord clamp is valuable after delivery, then why would we want to have early cord clamping before delivery even happens? Does that make sense? So put it to you this way, delivering of the baby, so body's out and immediately cutting the, the cord is not advisable. Well, Think about how less advisable that would be if the baby hasn't even delivered and just the head's out. Does that make sense? In this clinical expert series, it states, quote, the practice of early cord clamping, which is not based on evidence or physiology, is no longer part of the active management of the third stage of labor unless there is a perceived need for urgent resuscitation, end quote. Now, remember, we're not talking about delayed cord clamp, but we're talking, we're making the point here that if delayed cord clamp has value, then it doesn't really make sense then to cut and clamp even before the child delivers. Does that make sense? You see what I'm trying to say? Because there is value in leaving that communication intact so that at the moment of birth, that all of that, that vital stem cells and, and blood volume can go into the child, which happens within seconds of delivery. As it states in this review, and, and look at the amount of blood that we're talking about here, it states, quote, in term newborns, postnatal placental transfusion provides an additional 80 to 100 mLs of blood. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot to an adult, right? 80 to 100 mLs, I mean, is that a big deal? Well, the short answer is, yeah, that is a big deal because that represents anywhere from one quarter to one third, up to 33% of the neonatal blood volume. That's a lot. So remember, this is after delivery with the first breast of life, that placental blood flow goes into the child. So think about it, as the head delivers, if we cut and clamp and interrupt that, then that potentially has, uh, has a lot of, of volume that's not going into the child. And of course, we know that that's tied not just to immediate needs, but potential uh, neurodevelopmental outcomes uh, later on down the road. All to say, now that we know that delayed cord clamping is a thing after delivery, clamping and cutting the cord before the kid even delivers probably is not the best, all right? So all to say that they're, look, if they have no other option, then do it and just make sure that the kid comes out quickly. But outside from the fact that you've interrupted uh, the oxygenation of the child before the baby actually delivers, before the body delivers, um, the second important issue there, uh, and probably the most important, is that the baby doesn't get that post 
placental transfusion uh, after the body is born, all right? So if you have to do it, cord and clamp, uh, clamp and cut the cord, then that's fine. But this is why the somersault maneuver is, is much better. Now let's get into that. The first time that this was officially described and put into print was in 1991 in the Journal of Midwifery. So once again, there's a lot that we can learn from the discipline of midwifery. Actually, it's the Journal of Nurse Midwifery. Sorry about that. The Journal of N- Journal of Nurse Midwifery. That was uh, volume 36, number two, in March and April of 1991. The author was Mavis Shorn and George Blanco. Okay, now Blanco was a physician, MD, and Schwarn was a CNM. But this just goes to show, I mean, everything that uh, first gets put off to the side, like, oh, we're not doing that. We've got medical protocols for that. Uh, Yeah, get taken up into mainstream. I mean, that's why we have that previous episode, Lessons Learned from Midwifery, Uh, like laboring on the back, right? Lithotomy laboring, that's such a physician thing. That's how, you know, mainstream medicine does it. That's probably not helpful. (laughs) You don't allow for the curve of the sacrum to flatten out. Um, It doesn't allow for good pain control. So that's why all these, you know, the, the flexibility of labor positions all comes from midwifery. So there's a lot to learn from the discipline of midwifery. Anyway, even though I'm sure that this maneuver has been had been done before, but good for uh, Mavis Shorn and George Blanco because they put it into print. Uh, and, and you see, you may have done this before even knowing what it was called or that it was a real thing. I know I've done it where I'm trying to reduce the nuchal cord. I'm saying, oh, hold on, hold on. Wait, wait, wait. You know, let me reduce this. And she has a big push and boom, that kid delivers and somersaults. Um, you know, the butt comes on top of the baby's head and I'm like, whoa. And then automatically I'm like, oh, nuchal cord's gone. Well, that's the idea. So sometimes this happens in and of itself with maternal pushing uh, and a spontaneous contraction where the baby just kind of pushes uh, uh, the rest of the body out as you're holding the head trying to get that nuchal cord out. And in effect, that's the somersault position. But that's when it's done kind of by accident and not so controlled. But there is a way to do this on purpose, all right? So once again, the original description was 1991. And I'm going to give you a a very nice, very basic little website. just like one page uh, that I found that goes through the four F's, okay? The four F's of the somersault birth. Now, uh, I mean, it really, it breaks this up like into all in these four little boxes. It's not that complicated. It's not that technical. It's super easy. I'm going to tell you what it is in a minute. But in cases of a tight nuchal cord, consider the four F's. I like that they did this, right? I mean, flex, fixate, force, and it's not you forcing it. It's the force of a spontaneous contraction or maternal pushing effort. And then the baby is freed. So the last F is free. Okay. So the four F's, and again, there is a website called somersaultbirth.com, is flex, fixate, force, and free. And I'll put this reference on our reference list. All right, so baby's head is out. You've got a tight nuchal cord. You can't reduce it. We're trying not to cut and clamp unless we really, really have to, right? So the first step in the somersault maneuver is to help the baby to bend the back forward. In other words, the first thing you're going to do is flex the baby's head. Baby's head's delivered. Now you're going to flex the baby's head down uh, and towards the mother's uh, inner thigh, all right? So it's flexion of the head and neck so that it can automatically cause this curvature in in the cervical and the upper back area, right? So you do it right now wherever you are, unless you're driving, keep your eyes on the road. 
Bend your head down, chin towards the chest. What happens to your back, right? You're forming a natural ball. So as you as you make that baby kind of flex the chin down towards the maternal thigh, cord, nuchal cord is still there, right? It's not reduced. But what you're doing is, is that you're helping that curve of the back um, form, all right? So baby's head is out. It, it baby's trying to deliver. As it's delivering, it's just flex the baby's head down towards uh, the chest and towards the inner thigh. Next, hold it there. That's fixate. You'll just keep that head there. And then with the mother's continued, continuing force, that's the third F, as she continues to push, think about it. You're holding the head still, right? So it's mom's continuing to push. It's like the Play-Doh factory, right? It keeps coming. Baby's body keeps coming. And so what happens is that by natural uh, uh, curvature, the baby's butt now is on top of the baby's head. Does that make sense? So naturally, right, baby's head leads and then buttocks is below. As the baby is elevated up uh, through the birth canal, but here you're keeping the baby's f- head flexed and fixed along the maternal inner thigh. Nuchal cord still there. Mom's continuing to push, so the baby's body basically rotates upward, but is now up, and so there's a somersault maneuver. Right. So as the baby delivers, and now the butt flips over the baby's head, then you can very easily free the nuchal cord. Does that make sense? It's a somersault, guys. You see, we make it so technical, like flex, fixate, force, and then free, which is nice. It's nice to have little steps. It just sounds much more complicated. Hold the baby's head by the thigh. Uh, make sure the baby's uh, back you know, has a natural curvature so that it delivers with the butt up. Do a little somersault, and then whoop, the baby's neck comes out of the sling. So all to say, we can make it sound way complicated. It really isn't. And like I said, I'm sure you may have done this before because I have I, like inadvertently. I'm like, oh, well, my gosh, it's still coming. Burp, and baby flips over. Nuchal cord is resolved. So again, the first option is to try to just reduce it. That's the mi- minimally invasive way. But if it doesn't have a good tug, please don't break the cord because cord avulsion obviously puts the baby at risk of exsanguination because the baby has an open conduit uh, and it doesn't take a lot for the baby to lose a significant amount of blood through a ruptured cord, right? So don't pull on it um, if it's not coming. Okay. Next is attempt the somersault maneuver. Now it'd be great as a simulation. Uh, if you work with medical students or residents, practice this. It's easy. We've done it with a rope uh, on a doll in a maternal pelvis. Uh, the rope symbolizes uh, the cord. You can do a tourniquet. Uh, we've also used a foley to put around the baby's uh, neck, like simulation of a cord uh, with a little uh, baby doll through the pelvis, a bony pelvis model. So there's several ways to practice this, and I think it's a good idea. I mean, it's not like we're not going to see a nuchal cord, right? I mean, the 25 to 30%, you're going to see a nuchal cord. And for those that you can't reduce, rather than going straight to just clamp and cut, which totally works, I mean, it, it, that's not a problem. It, it's not a, a matter of does it work, because the answer is yes. Is, that, is it really the best? Because you are preventing, again, that placental transfusion to the neonate. Uh, so, and it's not my thing. I'm not advocating something new. I mean, 1991, people have done this. People didn't even know that's a real thing. When I've t- talked to other people about this, I'm like, oh, somersault maneuver. Like, what's that? Oh, hold the baby's head down, basically keep it flexed, let the butt deliver, uh, and then flip it over. So it's like a little somersault maneuver. Like, oh, I've done that by, you know, just by accident. Um, so it is a, a real thing. So anyway, I thought this was interesting. I, I thought it was a great topic when I received that Facebook message. Uh, hey, what's the best way to kind of deliver a baby through a tight nuchal cord? Uh, so it is a reduction, cut and clamp, which is now moved to the third line. And then the second line after reduction, if that's not possible, is the fetal somersault maneuver.
All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. So the somersault maneuver. Yep, it's a thing. So I hope you found this helpful. Again, thank you so much for all your podcast messages. Thank you all for your support. I'm serious, your encouragement, especially in crazy, sad, confusing times that the world is going in. I just think it's so valuable for us just to encourage each other. Uh, and every message that I get that has, you know, that little, little you know, pat on the back, uh, I, I take that to heart. Thank you so much uh, for all of your support and your kind words. Uh, all right. We're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.